0: Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, the 12th day of February, 2024. All material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Carol Lockard and Jeff Cassett. Here's Carol with our first story.
1: Thank you, Jeff, and hello everyone. "Timeless Tickets is the title of this, Johnny Cash, played in quad cities twice it was quite the time in february of 1960 at the start of the month the walk of fame was established in hollywood at the end the winter olympics started in tahoe california and on february 13th here in the quad cities johnny cash played a show at the call Colbal- Colbal- ball call ballroom um, i'm not sure coel period ballroom believe it or not that wasn't his first show in the quad cities And it wasn't even his last local show of 1960. The late star, known for Ring of Fire, first played locally in the late 1950s. But 1960 was the only year he graced the Quad City with his presence twice. First at the aforementioned call ballroom show, and then again on May 20th across the river at Moline's famous Horton Fieldhouse. How much cash to see cash? Cash's visit in February landed on Saturday night and it paired him with a dance party alongside local act Hal Weiss or Weezy and his orchestra. Weezy went on to work for the Rock Island Arsenal in research and development, earning 20 patents before retiring and starting his own music manufacturing business. He passed away in September of 2001 at 91 years old. Tickets for the February 1960 Cash show sold for $1.75 in advance or $2 at the door. For reference, ticket stubs online indicate that his shows sold for $9 in the early 80s and $30 in the early 90s. In Moline and May, Cash played with Johnny Horton, a rising rockabilly star who died in Texas later that year. Horton, who had performed Elvis, and written songs for John Wayne films, died in a car crash accident in November. Cash read a Bible verse at Horton's funeral. Around the paper that day, sports news was dominated by the Iowa Hawkeyes' upcoming men's basketball game against the powerhouse Ohio State Buckeyes. The top story on the front page of the Daily Daily Times on February 12th is about a mysterious submarine in the Golfo Nuevo of Argentina. In other local entertainment that week, RKO Orpheum Theater is advertising for an upcoming showing of On the Beach, a film starring Fred Astaire and Ava Gardner. Cash likely sang, I Walk the Line. At the time of his 1960 visits to the Quad Cities, Cash was already an established touring act. I Walk the Line, had become a hit and Folsom Prison Blues was a successful single too, although Cash's famous performance at Folsom Prison did not happen for another eight years. Cash's most recent release when he first came to the Quad Cities that year was Songs of Our Soil, his fourth full-length record. The album charted on the Billboard Hot 100 with the single Five Feet High and Rising. It delved heavily in the topic of death, subject matter that later became forever associated with Cash, especially through his later years when he covered Nine Inch Nails, Hurt in the early 2000s, just years before his own passing. Between his two Quad Cities shows, Cash released another record, 1960s Now, There Was a Song. This one was full of covers, with Cash taking on tracks from songwriters like Kenny Rogers, Hannick Williams, and George Jones. While it's not certain what Cash's set list might have looked like in Davenport and Moline that year, we can get a good idea from other collected set lists on that tour. In Winnipeg, a week after his February show in Davenport, Cash played original songs Big River, Guess Things Happened That Way, I Walk the Line, and You're the Nearest Thing to Heaven. Cash came back to the call ballroom in 1961, and played at Davenport's Masonic Temple in uh, 1967, 68, 72, 74, 82, and 87. His final local show came June of 1995 when he played at the mark of the Quad Cities. And this story is part of a series called Timeless Tickets where we're aiming to find the most notable concert in the Quad Cities every year from 1960 to today. If you have a story or a photo to share from any kind of iconic local show, send it to entertainment reporter Gannon Hannevold at g h a n e v o l d at qctimes.com. Jeff?
0: Crises are not black and white. The Quad City Schools are on how to prevent mental health crises. This editor's note. This is the second in a three-part series about how Quad City schools address safety. This story focuses on the role of mental health resources in preventing crises. Quad City schools are seeing national trends play out. As an increase in mental health needs nationwide have made preventing crises more challenging. There's a nationwide mental health crisis particularly among teenage populations, North Scott SRO Jack Shortman said. According to the National Center of Education Statistics, 87% of U.S. public schools reported the pandemic negatively impacted students' socio-emotional development in the 2021-22 school year, citing upticks in student misconduct and classroom disruptions. We can put up more sensors, more protections here, and nothing ever happens, Shortman said. But we can try to prevent a situation from happening by giving students the help they need prior to. East Moline Superintendent Kristen Humphreys said it's all about cultivating good soil, putting in the work up front to not only respond to crisis situations as they happen, but prepare in advance the district uses an approach called conscious discipline. At the district's early learning center, teachers hang up next to their classrooms a sign that allows children to decide how they'd like to be greeted that day. They can choose from a range of greetings, a high five, a hug, a fist bump, and others. Humphrey said he saw a group of Ridgeland students each choosing to give their first grade teacher a hug on their way into special class. It's not just having a sign on the wall and giving kid a fist bump, but we do a lot of work on giving kids the tools to help them regulate themselves, he said, adding that being able to communicate with children in different brain states is key. Kids that keep things bottled up are the kids that generally we're having problems with. North Scott High School has a school-based therapist, Schwertman noted. He said, but that's one person for 1,200 kids in this building alone. Students are not going to be able to get the full, adequate amount of help in 30 minutes. Considering this dilemma, Schwertman urges school leaders and law enforcement alike to view crisis response from a different perspective with more of a focus on providing mental health assistance earlier. Other districts also are doing prevention work, including focusing on students' emotional and mental health needs. Pardon me while I continue. I beg your pardon. Uh, crises are not black and white, said Sarah Harris, Bettendorf School's SEBH, that's Social, Emotional, and Behavioral Health Coordinator. There's no profile for an active shooter. For this reason, she said, it's critical to consider safe belongings in school environments. During talks of campus related crisis mitigation, Violence prevention is positive behavior intervention support, Harris said, and the things we do to help kids feel safe in an environment. Additionally, Bettendorf's crisis response teams undergo regular crisis response violence prevention, that's CRVP training, and tabletop discussions on a variety of topics meeting monthly. Each session aims to teach CRVP through a trauma-informed lens, Harris said. This is about talking CRVP through, preparing for it, and then getting on a cycle of prevention, she said. We're not responding constantly at a macro level, but we are working all the time. DCSD Communications Director Sarah Ott said Davenport schools have a place have placed a huge emphasis on social emotional learning, that's SEL, integrating it into all grade level curriculum. Having trauma informed practices and behaviors, supports uh, has been big. Integrating supports for our students has been at the forefront of everything the district has been doing over the past few years. In her kindergartner's classroom at McKinley Elementary in Davenport, Susan Roll notices this SEL integration, particularly in terms of behavioral regulation and de-escalation. While she doesn't have a magic answer on how schools and communities should properly address and prevent school-based violence, to her tighter gun control laws are a start. If you don't have access to a gun, then nobody's going to get shot, simply, Rawls said. I'm not talking about taking away Second Amendment rights. I'm talking about weapons of mass destruction, kids with access to guns, and so forth. I think it's appalling for us as a state and nation that our school-aged children have to learn active shooter drills, she said. I think it's a reflection of the grown-ups in the country. I'm embarrassed myself. As firearm regulations continue to be a hot-button legislative issue, Rawl said schools should be laser-focused on bullying and advocates for increased mental health funding. I think bullying is probably the number one thing that causes school-aged kids, let's be honest, teenage boys, to want to go in and shoot up a school. Alongside gun access, she said, I think we have to teach our kids that That and why you shouldn't do it, whether that's like a full on class or more people coming in to talk in ultimately in assembly style and so forth. Rawl said she has regular conversations with her kindergartner about bullying, aiming to help build self advocacy skills. Bettendorf parent Michael Burns said he sees a need for a wider role for parents and other role models in preventive work. He doesn't view the topic of school violence as solely a school problem. Instead, he calls it a microcosm of society and one of the many challenges parents face, urging more parents to have clear behavioral expectations, frequent conversations about violence, and hold their children accountable. Carol, back to you.
1: And Mardi Gras Ball fundraiser was held. The Junior Board of Rock Island held its 85th annual Mardi Gras Ball fundraiser on Saturday at the Waterfront Convention Center in Bettendorf. This year's Mardi Gras King is William Michael Haas. Haas graduated from Rock Island High School in 1964. He then attended St. Ambrose University for three years. He serves as chairman of the Rock Island County Sheriff's Merit Commission, of which he's been a member since 1997. He's also past president of the Rock Island Family YMCA Board and was involved with the Wise capital campaign to move the YMCA from downtown to its new location at 2715 30th Street. He's a member of the Rock Island Inspection Commission and has been an active participant in the Rock Island Labor Day Parade with the Spring Hill Poker Club for more than 10 years. Haas worked for Valley Construction as a youth in the summers. He started as a laborer and now is president of the Valley Group. He attends Heritage Church in Rock Island and has been married to his wife Nancy for 53 years. They have two children. This year's Mardi Gras queen is Marla Archer anditch, anditch has been a resident of Rock Island for 49 years. She grew up in Chicago, graduated from Niles North High School in Skokie, Illinois in 1968. She attended Northern Illinois University where she earned a Bachelor of Science degree in 1972. She worked for CNA Insurance in Chicago and the Hartford Insurance Company in Bettendorf. She also worked as a homebound tutor for Rock Island schools. She began working as an instructor at Blackhawk College in 1986 in the Optional Education Program, an alternative high school and GED program. and it coordinated the Early School Lever Program in 2000, providing career exploration and transition to college and career programs. In 2004, she earned her Master's of Science in Education from Western Illinois University. She has volunteered for many organizations over the years, including being president of the Quad Cities chapter of Hadassah, and in leadership roles with Sisters of Salaam Shalom, Rock Island Kiwanis Club, Gilda's Club, the former Rock Island County Bar Auxiliary, Rock Island Public Library Foundation, and Living Proof Exhibit. She also is a former presenter for Dolls for Democ- Democracy, a program sponsored by Jewish Women International. And it attends the Tri-City Jewish Center, where she's a board member. She also has served as president of the Beth Israel Sisterhood. She was a member of the Junior Board and served in many capacities from 1994 to 2004. And it has been married to her husband, Steve, for 52 years. They have three children. Founded in 1935, the Junior Board of Rock Island works to support children in the community, primarily by supporting the organization's Project NEST program through direct volunteer service and fundraising for child-related causes. The organization also allocates funds to more than 40 other nonprofit organizations in the community, helping to ensure children have what they need to live a healthy and successful life.
0: Jeff? Lawmakers say immigration is a federal issue. Legal immigration needs to be easier, Webster says. Education and immigration were two of the bigger topics discussed at a Scott County Legislative Forum held Saturday at Scott Community College. About 80 people attended the forum, which was sponsored by the Eastern Iowa Community College District and administered by the American Association of University Women. Former Iowa State Senator Maggie Tinsman moderated the 90-minute event. Iowa State Legislature, uh, excuse me, Iowa State Senators Cindy Winkler, a Democrat, and Scott Webster, a Republican, along with Republican State uh, Representatives Mike Vondren, Gary Moore, and Norlin Momsen, and Democratic State Representatives Monica Kurth and Ken Crokin, answered questions from the audience that were written on cards and read by Thompson, or Tinsman. Question regarding the Future Ready Iowa Last Dollar Scholarship started the program, with each of the participants saying they support continuing the program, which covers any remaining gap between federal and state grants and scholarships and tuition and qualified fees. Rarely in government have I discovered you have an opportunity to look at spending as an investment that has truly been a good investment, Vondran said of the program. The return is evident. The date proves it. Why would we not continue to invest in something that's giving us such a wonderful return? Winkler, who was on the education committee as a state House rep when the program was initiated, said she wished that children' uh, child care programs were part of it. All community colleges identified <clears throat> that that was a significant need, Winkler said. Because the starting wages are only uh, $8.40 for entry level into child development programming and service, they are not allowed to be part of it. Every public meeting I go to, they talk about the need for child care in regard to economic development as well. She added that the programs do need to shift as some of the needs of the marketplace have been met. Crookin said, I would be more enthusiastic if we could find a way to expand the program. We often confuse education with training, and education is good too. Not every field of study leads to a high-yield employee, and that's okay. We want to be in an educated country, and so I certainly would support child care, and also I would expand it. When the question turned to Governor Kim Reynolds' attempt to alter how the nine area education agencies in Iowa receive funding and offer services, each of the panelists said they could not support the bill in its original form. Iowa House leaders have said they do not plan to advance the Governor's bill. Each of the panelists identified what they considered problems with the bill. Uh, Moore said, I was opposed to the governor's bill. Since then, I've worked to alter it, delay it, defeat it. I had a lot of problems with it. One was we didn't sit around the table with with the stakeholders, the AEAs, the parents of the kids. I was opposed to putting all of the AEAs under the control of the Department of Education of Iowa, which is a department I don't particularly trust, he said. Kurtz said that currently she's definitely a no on the bill. Kurtz said the original bill was 170 pages, adding the amended version is 130 pages. It's taking an axe to a program that has been extremely helpful within our state. Other states have emulated us and tried to be like us, so I don't see the reason to completely change it. It puts a lot of power and control in the statewide Department of Education rather than at the local level. Momsen and Webster both said they, uh, the system worked when it came to the AEA bill. You reached out to us and we put a hold on it and worked on it, Momsen said. Webster said that some sort of agreement may come in the Senate within the next couple of weeks. Crokin said it was eye-opening to see the wide array of services that AEAs provide, including many that people don't always recognize. Our AEA structure is the envy of many states across the country, he said. Why would we deal with this as a problem when there are so many other more compelling problems is not clear to me. Winkler said that I hope we have, I hope What we have at the end of the day is a study. That, again, is not kicking the can down the road. It is involving the community in the conversation that was missing when the governor's bill came out. It was very incomplete, which then you see the pushback from the public from a bill that in no way reflects what AEAs do, Winkler said. The panel also shared their views on Senate File 2211, That would make it a state crime for undocumented immigrants to enter or re-enter Iowa. Under the bill, Iowa law enforcement would have the authority to arrest undocumented immigrants in the state. The bill would likely face a constitutional challenge if passed and signed. A similar law in Texas is being challenged on the grounds that immigration enforcement is a federal responsibility. Immigrant advocacy groups have expressed opposition to the Iowa bill. Vondran said, it's a big issue. I got to wrap my head around it. There is, in my mind, a difference between migration and illegal alien. There's a lot of moving parts with regard to this. I mean, we're talking about human beings, he said. They're not all bad. I don't know any... I don't know that any simple swipe of a pen is going to make a huge difference just yet. At the same time, he expressed concerns about the impact of fentanyl coming across the border. Kurth said that Iowa needs people and should be welcoming to immigration. I haven't seen the bill, she said. I'll look at it carefully, and, and, but I think that Iowa has, ne- has a need for more people and I think we need to be sensitive to that. Moore said his disgust is at the federal level. He, he called immigration a federal responsibility and said the problem of illegal border crossings needs to be handled at the federal level. How long does it take for Congress to develop an immigration policy or a ball that solves this problem? Yes, we need uh, workers, but yes, we've got too many people entering illegally. Momsen, too, sees immigration as a federal issue. Taking up at the state level, he added, is wasting the ink and paper. Crokin said that what disgusts me is too many people are really enjoying the problem. After taking a trip to Eagle Pass, Crokin said it's not as advertised and said that sending a 100 or more state troopers down there will do nothing to solve this problem. Webster said he would defend Governor Reynolds for using ARPA funds to protect the border. He said, we need to make legal immigration easier and illegal immigration a little harder. Immigrants in Iowa will help grow the state's economy, he said, and that's a good thing. Legal immigration isn't a bad thing, it's the illegal part that the federal government must handle. Another proposed bill would bar undocumented immigrants from receiving in-state tuition at local or at Iowa's public universities. Winkler said there are a lot of Iowans who would benefit from the DREAM Act. They were brought here when they were young and they've grown up here and gone through our schools. They're good citizens, she said but they could not get in-state tuition because they are not citizens, she said. In-state tuition should be available to them, Winkler said. Carol.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Um, And from the local page, a pedestrian was killed in parking lot on Saturday. A LeClaire woman faces vehicular homicide charges after a fatal accident in the parking lot of Riverview Roadhouse at Saturday on Saturday evening. The victim, whose identity is being withheld pending family notification, was pronounced dead at the scene, according to a press release by Leclerc Police Chief Shane Dimas. The Leclerc Police Department conducted an investigation of the incident, resulting in Molly Vance of Leclerc being charged with operating while intoxicated, the first offense, a serious misdemeanor, and homicide by vehicle, a Class B felony. Vance was booked into the Scott County Jail. LeClaire police were assisted by the Scott County Sheriff's Office, LeClaire Fire Department, and Scott County EMS. The incident remains under investigation. And a man was charged, has been charged with causing an overdose of a woman. A Savannah, Illinois man currently serving time in an Iowa prison for trafficking in fentanyl is facing charges in Carroll County, Illinois, after authorities said they linked fentanyl he was selling to the overdose death of a Thompson woman in 2022. According to a news release issued Friday by the Illinois State Police Division of Criminal Investigations, Cedric Thomas, 21, Is charged with one count each of drug-induced homicide and unlawful delivery of a controlled substance. Under Illinois law, drug-induced homicide is a class X felony with a special sentencing range of 15 to 30 years in prison. Unlawful delivery of a controlled substance is a class 2 felony that carries a prison sentence of three to seven years. According to the Illinois State Police News release, on March 2nd, 2022, the Thompson Police Department requested the Illinois State Police lead a death investigation involving the alleged drug overdose of 28-year-old Amy Lachelle of Thompson. As a result of that investigation on February 7th, the Carroll County State's Attorney's Office approved the charges against Thomas. Thomas is currently incarcerated at Anamosa State Penitentiary. On May twentieth, two 2023, Thomas was arrested by Clinton authorities after he sold fentanyl on four occasions to confidential sources working with the Black Hawk Area Task Force in April and May of that year. The Clinton County arrest warrant was served to Thomas at the Carroll County, Illinois jail, where he was being held on charges of manufacture and delivery of 1 to 15 grams of fentanyl and possession of a controlled substance. On August 24th, 2022, Thomas pleaded guilty in Carroll County Circuit Court to one count of manufacture and delivery of one to 15 grams of fentanyl. Carroll County Circuit Court Judge Jerry Kane sentenced Thomas to serve eight years in the Illinois Department of Corrections. Kane ordered the sentence to run concurrent or at the same time to any prison sentence Thomas was to receive in Iowa. Jeff?
0: There are no full obituaries published in today's Quad Cities Times, but one pending announcement. Victor Brian Clark, age 88, of Andalusia, passed away on Friday, February 9th at uh, Harmony of Davenport. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Milan. Turning now to the opinion section, here's Carol. And of course we
1: have two opinions on this page. Um, The first one is written by Benjamin Case who is a postdoctoral research scholar at the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University. Two-state solution may be closer than ever. And uh, the main headline was the path to peace. And uh, this is his opinion. Um, As the war in Gaza Strip enters its fourth month, it might seem like possibilities for long-term peaceful solutions are impossible. Even before the October seventh, two 2023 attack on southern Israel by Hamas-led forces from Gaza, Many analysts were already declaring the idea of a two state solution dead. The creation of a Palestinian state alongside a separate Israel faces real barriers. For example, the Israeli government rejects the creation of a Palestinian state and Hamas refuses to recognize Israel. After October 7th, some analysts think the barriers are even more insurmountable. As a scholar of political violence and conflict, I think the unprecedented scale of violence in Israel and Gaza is creating equally unprecedented urgency to find a solution, not just to the current violence, but to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The fall of apartheid in South Africa in early 1990s has similarities. Growing international pressure and an intensifying war focusing attention on an unstable system and pushing people to find possibilities for peace that previously seemed impossible. In 1948, the white nationalist Afrikaner National Party was elected to run South Africa. The National Party formalized racial segregation policies in a system known as apartheid, an Afrikaans word that means apartness or separateness. Apartheid ranked people by racial group, with white people at the top black people at the bottom. The collapse of apartheid policies in the early 1990s is often attributed to a combination of South Africans resistance and the economic pressure brought by international anti-apartheid boycotts of South Africa. Another major factor was South Africa's border war in uh, Namibia and Angola. The war in southwest Africa, which is now Namibia and Angola became a proxy for the ongoing Cold War and Western countries' fear of Communism spreading. The U.S. supported South Africa's army and pro-Western militias, while the Soviet Union and Cuba supported pro-independence fighters. By the 1980s, the conflict was escalating into wider war, threatening to pull the United States and the Soviet Union into direct conflict. South African Prime Minister P.W. Botha resigned in 1989 after losing the support of his own far-right polity for his failure in the war and inability to impose order. In 1990, Namibia declared independence. That same year, a new South African government began rolling back apartheid policies, paving the way for historic elections in 1994 that were won in a landslide by anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela. South Africa's involvement in its border war is different in many ways from Israel's military campaign in Gaza, but similarities may offer guidance. For more than half a century, Israel has controlled the borders of the West Bank and Gaza. Home to five million Palestinians these areas exist in a kind of netherworld between being part of Israel and being separate, sovereign entities. Israel controls their territory, but Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza cannot vote in Israel and do not have basic rights. It is a situation that has repeatedly given way to extreme fighting between Israels and Palestinians. Yet the U.S. and other powers firmly back Israel as a strategic ally. The shocking scale of violence in the war is changing that about 1,200 people were killed and 240 were kidnapped in Hamas's October 7th attack. In Gaza, Israel's war has killed more than 27,000 residents, mostly civilians, This violence, along with the threat of a wider war breaking out, is upending the once-remote idea of significant change in the region. Pressure is growing internationally for a ceasefire and a two-state solution. The U.S., the European Union, and China all voice support for a two-state solution, and Saudi Arabia has made the possibility of a historic accord with Israel contingent on it. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's approval ratings are tanking. And the Israeli government is increasingly divided over the war effort with Netanyahu's losing support in his own far-right party. The two-state solution still faces large obstacles, but international consensus is growing that a two-state solution is the only acceptable outcome. And here's Jeff with the second opinion of
0: the day. Many Israelis, not just Netanyahu, are opposed. This opinion, authored by Ralph Raphael Cohen, who is the director of the Strategic and Doctrine Program of the RAND Corporation's Project Air Force, he wrote this for the Los Angeles Times. One can understand why President Joe Biden, after sticking his political neck out for Israel for months, is reportedly frustrated with Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Rockets were still falling on Tel Aviv when Biden visited Israel to show support. He sent US armed forces to the region to deter Hezbollah and more recently, beat back Houthi piracy. He pushed for billions of dollars in additional military aid and backed Israel's war in Gaza, even as it became increasingly unpopular. In exchange, Biden asked Netanyahu to commit to a Palestinian state once the Israel-Hamas war ends, and Netanyahu publicly said no. The United States is now reported to be engaged, engaging with other leaders and parties in Israel about the future of Gaza and the Palestinians at large. The problem is that opposition to a Palestinian state stretches well beyond the Prime Minister's office. Netanyahu undeniably has his own reasons for rejecting Palestinian statehood. His government relies on the support of ultra-right-wing parties that advocate expelling Gazans from the Strip en masse. If he backed Palestinian statehood, the coalition would shatter and his government would collapse. And polls suggest that if new elections are held, Netanyahu will be out of a job. Then there are the broader practicalities of implementing a two-state solution, demarcating everything from water rights to airspace and carving out the geography, quote, from the river to the sea, end quote, without bisecting Israel in the process. The most daunting political problems would be relocating the 700,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank and the eternal challenge of dealing with Jerusalem. But something deeper is behind Netanyahu's opposition a fundamentally different conception of the root cause of the October 7th massacre massacre and the war. In the American narrative, the context of October 7 is the failure of the 1990s era Israeli-Palestinian peace process. In this telling, Israel's mowing-the-grass approach, killing militants without simultaneously providing Palestinians with real political or economic opportunities, was bound to fail. So, peace begins with providing those opportunities and a path to a two-state solution. In Israel's version of events, the error was Israel's 2005 withdrawal from Gaza, which gave Hamas a sanctuary to plan, train for, and ultimately launch a relatively unimpeded attack on Israel. In Israel's view, a two-state solution would only compound this problem. The Palestinian Authority is widely viewed as weak and corrupt. Nearly 9 in 10 Palestinians want its president, Mahmoud Abbas, to resign. Meanwhile, 57% of Gazans and 82% of West Bank Palestinians approve of Hamas' October attack. So. Israel asks, what would prevent Hamas or similar groups from usurping control of a Palestinian state, much as they did in Gaza? This is not just Netanyahu's view, but Israel's, the Israelis' view. Support for a two-state solution among Israelis has been declining for a decade. Even if Netanyahu were to depart from the political scene, such Israeli support or opposition, excuse me, opposition would remain. This leaves the United States with few levers to pull. It can offer plans for redrawing the map, but that won't get to the heart of the matter. It can promise incentives, such as normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia, but the fear of another October 7 will trump any potential benefits. Perhaps the path forward is to start smaller. As Israeli President Isaac Herzog noted, the average Israeli wants to know, can we be promised real safety in the future? After the trauma of October 7, it'll take time to build such confidence. But his framing hints at where to start. Israel's military leaders have have argued that its security requires planning for the war's end and rebuilding Gaza. Netanyahu has resisted any such discussion, but American pressure might change his calculus. Done right, reconstruction could foster the mutual trust necessary for a more lasting political settlement. Such incrementalism is bound to frustrate everyone, but like any number of previous presidents, Biden is learning that while the dynamics of the Middle East may change, frustration is a constant.
1: And on to the sports pages. Big comeback lifts Hawkeyes. Moline's Freeman has double-double and four blocks in victory. Dateline, Iowa City. Patrick McCaffrey and Peyton Sanford each scored 21 points that combined... For 26 in the second half to help Iowa rally from a 20 point deficit and beat Minnesota 90 to 85 on Sunday. Tony Perkins added 12 of his 18 on the second half, and Owen Freeman, a freshman from Moline, had 17 points, 14 rebounds, and four blocks for Iowa, who is 14 and 10 and 6 and 10 in the Big Ten. Dawson Garcia scored 18 points on 7-of-8 shooting, Braden Carrington also scored 18, and Mike Mitchell Jr. added 17 points, including five three-pointers for Minnesota. Iowa made 9 of 11 shots from the free throw line down the stretch to seal it. Farrell Payne made a layup that gave Minnesota the lead with 17 minutes 29 seconds left in the first half as Garcia scored six points on a 10 to 4 opening run. McCaffrey converted a three-point play, Sanford hit two free throws, and then stole a the pass and found McCaffrey for a fast-breaking layup in a 7 to 2 spurt that cut Iowa's deficit to 26 to 24 about 10 minutes later. Mitchell then hit a three-pointer to open a 12 to 1 spurt that made it 38 to 25 when Christie capped the spurt when he hit another three, with five minutes 44 seconds to go before halftime. Iowa visits Maryland on Valentine's Day and Minnesota plays Friday at number two Purdue. Jeff.
0: Clark's quest is on hold. The Iowa lead disappears as Stars scoreless in the fourth quarter. Caitlin Clark peeked her head into the room, realizing she'd have to wait in the hallway before talking to nearly 40 reporters. Most of them had traveled to Nebraska on Super Bowl Sunday for Clark's coronation, and for three-quarters of number 2 Iowa's stunning 82-79 loss to Nebraska, Clark looked primed to break both the NCAA's career scoring mark for women's basketball and run her personal record against the Huskers to 9-0. and Clark had 31 points when the fourth quarter began, needing eight more to sit alone atop the NCAA record books. Her team led by 14. She never scored again. The Hawkeyes blew that lead and, when it was time for Clark to talk, the winning Nebraska basketball players were already at the microphones. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter erupted in the hallway as the coronation turned briefly into chaos. You gotta be kidding me, Bluter said loudly enough to silence Nebraska center Alexis Markowski who looked nervously toward the door. We've got a flight to catch. This is nonsense. This is not Big Ten protocol. Bluter never returned to the media room. Clark did, shaking her head as she walked in. She missed all six shots, four from three-point range, over the final ten minutes. The result, she said, of a box-and-one defense Nebraska deployed to start the fourth quarter. The concept is simple. One player follows Clark around like a shadow while the other four play zone. It's something we'd prepared for all throughout the season, Clark said. Hadn't necessarily prepped for it the last couple of practices, but should have been ready for it. Iowa missed 13 of 17 shots in the quarter, including three pointers in the final 10 seconds that would have sent the game to overtime. Clark fired the first of those, one of her patented step-back jumpers from the left wing that drew iron. You watched her shoot it and hope it doesn't go in, Nebraska guard Jazz Shelley said. The next one from Iowa guard Kate Martin missed two and so iowa lost its rivalry grip uh, for one afternoon on nebraska hawkeye fans hoping to see clark surpass washington's kelsey plum for the career scoring record waited for hours outside pinnacle bank arena with general admission tickets they comprised roughly half of the 15,042 fans yelling let's go hawks and shrieking with each clark make Markowski called the atmosphere kind of scary. Usually it's Nebraska fans invading the home arenas of other schools, not Sunday. Iowa had it on a platter too, after 30 minutes of game time, ahead 69 to 55, cruising. The scoring record in sight, what happened? We got away from Iowa basketball in the fourth quarter. Martin said, we've been playing not to lose instead of playing to win. Carol, back to you.
1: And coach football Iowa coach Wallace, happy where he is, linebacker's coach recently earned promotion in a pay raise. Like his top two tacklers last season, Seth Wallace chose to stay at the University of Iowa. The Hawkeyes linebacker's coach has drawn interest from other programs, but the Grinnell High School grad has chosen to stay home. I think there's a lot that pulls you here. There's a lot that makes you want to stay here, Wallace said. Because of that, I'm fortunate to be here. Very happy to be here. Wallace, in his 10th season with the Hawkeyes, recently added the title of assistant head coach. It's the first time in Kirk Ferentz's 25-year tenure he's given someone that title. It also came with a pay raise, boosting Wallace's base salary from 755000 To one million, I thought this was just the achievements that he's had. Ferentz said, "It's not intended to single anybody out or anything like that, but a recognition of quality work and the role that he's had, the assistance he's given Phil Parker and the entire staff. He's done a fantastic job with the defensive part of our program." Jeff, back to you.
0: And there was a football game yesterday, a super ending. Mahomes leads the rally as the Chiefs repeat with overtime win. Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and the Kansas City Chiefs are back-to-back Super Bowl champions. Mahomes threw a three-yard touchdown pass to McCole Hardman in overtime, and the Chiefs rallied to beat the San Francisco 49ers 25-22 on Sunday becoming the first repeat Super Bowl champs in 19 years and ninth overall. With pop star Taylor Swift watching boyfriend Kelsey from a suite, the Chiefs captured their third title in five years and firmly established themselves as a dynasty. The NFL's first Super Bowl in Las Vegas was a sloppy, mistake-filled affair that was mostly boring until back to back-and-forth fourth quarter, and overtime. It was the second of 58 Super Bowls to be tied after regulation, and the first played under new overtime rules that ensured both teams got the ball. The Chiefs, with a record of 15-6, and trailed 22-19 to after Jake Moody's uh, Jake Moody kicked a 27-yard field goal on the first possession of overtime, but Mahomes rallied the Chiefs, completing another impressive comeback in a rematch of, Super Bowl, of the Super Bowl of four years ago. Mahomes ran eight yards on fourth and one to keep the Chiefs' chances alive, and then scrambled 19 yards to set up the winning score, which came f- 14 minutes and 57 seconds into the extra period just before what would have been the second overtime. With all the adversity we've been through this season, to come through that tonight, I'm proud of the guys, said Mahomes, who was named most valuable player. This is awesome, legendary. After he connected with the wide open Hardman, the Chiefs ran onto the field as red and yellow confetti fell to the turf. The most excitement in the first half came when frustrated Kelsey bumped Andy Reid on the sideline, knocking the Chiefs' 65-year-old coach a few steps back after teammate Isaiah Pacheco fumbled inside the red zone during the second quarter. Uh, you guys saw that, Kelsey said. I'm going to keep it between us unless I'm mic'd up. He tells the world. I was just telling him how much I loved him. The action picked up after a crucial blunder by San Francisco's special team set up uh, Mahomes' 16-yard touchdown pass to Marquez Valdez-Scantling for a 13-10 lead. Brock Purdy and the 49ers, who are 14-6, and six, answered, but they couldn't make enough plays, denying Mr. Irrelevant an opportunity to go from the last pick in the 2022 NFL Draft to Super Bowl champion. Mahomes and Reed are now halfway to Tom Brady and Bill Ch- Belichick, who won six championships in 20 years together with the New England Patriots, And were the most recent team to go back-to-back following the 2003 and 04 seasons. The 28-year-old Mahomes became the fourth starting quarterback to win three Super Bowls, joining Bradley, or Brady, Joe Montana, Terry Bradshaw, and Troy Aikman, the second youngest. Niners wide receiver Juwan Jennings threw a touchdown pass and caught one. Joining the Eagles quarterback Nick Foles six years ago as the only players to do both in the Super Bowl. After Moody's 53-yard field goal gave the Niners a 19-16 lead with a minute 53 remaining, Mahomes and Kelsey went to work. Mahomes connected with Kelsey for a 22-yard gain to set up Harrison Butker's tying kick a 29 yarder with three seconds left a holding call on kansas city's trent mcduffie extended san francisco's opening drive in overtime uh and purdy's purdy made key throws to drive the 49ers to the chiefs nine but san francisco settled for a field goal Purdy, uh, Christian McCaffrey, and the Niners jumped ahead 10 to nothing, but that's no big deal for Mahomes and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. They've trailed by 10 points in all three of their victories, including last year's 38-35 win over Philadelphia. Mahomes wasn't at his best early and threw an interception, but with the game on the line, he was a magician once again. He finished 34 of 46 for 333 yards and two touchdowns. And that brings us to the end of the Quad Cities Times for today, the 12th of February, 2024. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockhart. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.